Industrial Society and Its Future Introduction Number 1 The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries, but they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering, in the third world to physical suffering as well, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. It will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering, and it may lead to increased physical suffering even in advanced countries. Number 2. The industrial technological system may survive or it may break down. If it survives, it may eventually achieve a low level of physical and psychological suffering, but only after passing through a long and very painful period of adjustment, and only at the cost of permanently reducing human beings and many other living organisms to engineered products and mere cogs in the social machine. Furthermore, if the system survives, the consequences will be inevitable. There is no way of reforming or modifying the system so as to prevent it from depriving people of dignity and autonomy. Number 3. If the system breaks down, the consequences will still be very painful. But the bigger the system grows, the more disastrous the results of its breakdown will be. So if it is to break down, it had best break down sooner rather than later. Number four. We therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. This revolution may or may not make use of violence. It may be sudden or it may be a relatively gradual process spanning a few decades. We can't predict any of that but we do outline in a very general way the measures that those who hate the industrial system should take in order to prepare the way for a revolution against that form of society. This is not to be a political revolution. Its object will be to overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society. Number five. In this article, we give attention to only some of the negative developments that have grown out of the industrial technological system. Other such developments we mention only briefly or ignore altogether. This does not mean that we regard these other developments as unimportant. For practical reasons, we have to confine our discussion to areas that have received insufficient public attention or in which we have something new to say. For example, since there are well-developed environmental and wilderness movements, we have written very little about environmental degradation or the destruction of wild nature, even though we consider these to be highly important. The Psychology of Modern Leftism Number 6 Almost everyone will agree that we live in a deeply troubled society. One of the most widespread manifestations of the craziness of our world is leftism 
So a discussion of the psychology of leftism can serve as an introduction to the discussion of the problems of modern society in general. Number seven, but what is leftism? During the first half of the 20th century, leftism could have been practically identified with socialism. Today, the movement is fragmented and is not clear who can properly be called the leftist. When we speak of leftists in this article, we have in mind mainly socialists, collectivists, politically correct types, feminists, gay and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like. But not everyone who is associated with one of these movements is a leftist. What we are trying to get at in discussing leftism is not so much a movement or an ideology as a psychological type, or rather a collection of related types. Thus, what we mean by leftism will emerge more clearly in the course of our discussion of leftist psychology. Also, see paragraphs 227 to 230. Number 8. Even so, our conception of leftism will remain a good deal less clear than we would wish, but there doesn't seem to be any remedy for this. All we are trying to do here is indicate in a rough and approximate way the two psychological tendencies that we believe are the main driving force of modern leftism. We by no means claim to be telling the whole truth about leftist psychology. Also, our discussion is meant to apply to modern leftism only. We leave open the question of the extent to which our discussion could be applied to the leftists of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Number 9. The two psychological tendencies that underlie modern leftism we call feelings of inferiority and over-socialization. Feelings of inferiority are characteristic of modern leftists as a whole. Over-socialization is characteristic only of a certain segment of modern leftism, but this segment is highly influential. Feelings of inferiority Number 10 By feelings of inferiority, we mean not only inferiority feelings in the strict sense, but a whole spectrum of related traits, low self-esteem, feelings of powerlessness, depressive tendencies, defeatism, guilt, self-hatred, etc. We argue that modern leftists tend to have some such feelings, possibly more or less repressed, and that these feelings are decisive in determining the direction of modern leftism. Number 11. When someone interprets as derogatory almost anything that is said about him or about groups with whom he identifies, we conclude that he has inferiority feelings or low self-esteem. This tendency is pronounced among minority rights activists, whether or not they belong to the minority groups whose rights they defend. They are hypersensitive about the words used to designate minorities and about anything that is said concerning minorities. The terms Negro, Oriental, Handicapped, or Chick for an African, an Asian, a disabled person, or a woman, originally had no derogatory connotation. Broad and Chick were merely the feminine equivalents of Guy, Dude, or Fellow. 
The negative connotations have been attached to these terms by the activists themselves. Some animal rights activists have gone so far as to reject the word pet and insist on its replacement by animal companion. Leftish anthropologists go to great lengths to avoid saying anything about primitive peoples that could conceivably be interpreted as negative. They want to replace the word primitive by non-literate. They seem almost paranoid about anything that might suggest that any primitive culture is inferior to our own. We do not mean to imply that primitive cultures are inferior to ours. We merely point out the hypersensitivity of leftish anthropologists. Number 12. Those who are most sensitive about politically incorrect terminology are not the average black ghetto dweller, Asian immigrant, abused woman, or disabled person, but a minority of activists, many of whom do not even belong to any oppressed group, but come from privileged strata of society. Political correctness has its stronghold among university professors who have secure employment with comfortable salaries, and the majority of whom are heterosexual white males from middle to upper middle class families. Number 13. Many leftists have an intense identification with the problems of groups that have an image of being weak, women, defeated, American Indians, repellent, homosexuals, or otherwise inferior. The leftists themselves feel that these groups are inferior. They would never admit to themselves that they have such feelings, but it is precisely because they do see these groups as inferior that they identify with their problems. We do not mean to suggest that women, Indians, etc. are inferior. We are only making a point about leftist psychology. Number 14. Feminists are desperately anxious to prove that women are as strong and as capable as men. Clearly, they are nagged by a fear that women may not be as strong and as capable as men. Number 15. Leftists tend to hate anything that is an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America. They hate Western civilization. They hate white males. They hate rationality. The reasons that leftists give for hating the West, etc., clearly do not correspond with their real motives. They say they hate the West because it is warlike, imperialistic, sexist, ethnocentric, and so forth. But where these same faults appear in socialist countries or in primitive cultures, the leftist finds excuses for them. Or at best, he grudgingly admits that they exist, whereas he enthusiastically points out and often greatly exaggerates, these faults where they appear in Western civilization. Thus, it is clear that these faults are not the leftists' real motive for hating America and the West. He hates America and the West because they are strong and successful. Number 16. Words like self-confidence, self-reliance, initiative, enterprise, optimism, etc., play little role in the liberal and leftist vocabulary. The leftist is anti-individualistic, pro-collectivist. He wants society to solve everyone's problems for them, satisfy everyone's needs for them, and take care of them. 
He is not the sort of person who has an inner sense of confidence in his ability to solve his own problems and satisfy his own needs. The leftist is antagonistic to the concept of competition because deep inside he feels like a loser. Number 17. Art forms that appeal to modern leftish intellectuals tend to focus on sordidness, defeat and despair, or else they take an orgiastic tone, throwing off rational control as if there were no hope of accomplishing anything through rational calculation and all that was left to immerse oneself in the sensations of the moment. Number 18. Modern leftish philosophers tend to dismiss reason, science, objective reality, and to insist that everything is culturally relative. It is true that one can ask serious questions about the foundations of scientific knowledge and about how, if at all, the concept of objective reality can be defined. But it is obvious that modern leftish philosophers are not simply cool-headed logicians systematically analyzing the foundations of knowledge. They are deeply involved emotionally in their attack on truth and reality. They attack these concepts because of their own psychological needs. For one thing, their attack is an outlet for hostility, and to the extent that it is successful, it satisfies the drive for power. More importantly, the leftists hate science and rationality because they classify certain beliefs as true. For example, successful, superior, and other beliefs as false, for example, failed or inferior. The leftist's feelings of inferiority run so deep that he cannot tolerate any classification of some things as successful or superior and other things as failed or inferior. This also underlies the rejection by many leftists of the concept of mental illness and of the utility of IQ tests. Leftists are antagonistic to genetic explanations of human abilities or behavior because such explanations tend to make some persons appear superior or inferior to others. Leftists prefer to give society the credit or blame for an individual's ability or lack of it. Thus, if a person is inferior, it is not his fault, but society's, because he has not been brought up properly. Number 19. The leftist is not typically the kind of person whose feelings of inferiority make him a braggart, an egotist, a bully, a self-promoter, a ruthless competitor. This kind of person has not wholly lost faith in himself. He has a deficit in his sense of power and self-worth, but he can still conceive of himself as having the capacity to be strong, and his efforts to make himself strong produce his unpleasant behavior. 1. But the leftist is too far gone for that. His feelings of inferiority are so ingrained that he cannot conceive of himself as individually strong and valuable. Hence the collectivism of the leftist. He can feel strong only as a member of a large organization or a mass movement with which he identifies himself. Number 20. Notice the masochistic tendency of the leftist tactics. Leftists protest by lying down in front of vehicles. They intentionally provoke police or racists to abuse them, etc. These tactics may often be effective, 
But many leftists use them not as a means to an end, but because they prefer masochistic tactics. Self-hatred is a leftist trait. Number 21. Leftists may claim that their activism is motivated by compassion or by moral principles, and moral principle does play a role for the leftists of the over-socialized type. But compassion and moral principle cannot be the main motives for leftist activism. Hostility is too prominent a component of leftist behavior, so it is the drive for power. Moreover, much leftist behavior is not rationally calculated to be of benefit to the people whom the leftists claim to be trying to help. For example, if one believes that affirmative action is good for black people, does it make sense to demand affirmative action in hostile or dogmatic terms? Obviously, it would be more productive to take a diplomatic and conciliatory approach that would make at least verbal and symbolic concessions to white people who think that affirmative action discriminates against them. But leftist activists do not take such an approach because it would not satisfy their emotional needs. Helping black people is not their real goal. Instead, race problems serve as an excuse for them to express their own hostility and frustrated need for power. In doing so, they actually harm black people because the activists' hostile attitude toward the white majority tends to intensify race hatred. Number 22. If our society had no social problems at all, the leftists would have to invent problems in order to provide themselves with an excuse for making a fuss. 23. We emphasize that the foregoing does not pretend to be an accurate description of everyone who might be considered a leftist. It is only a rough indication of a general tendency of leftism. Over-socialization. Number 24. Psychologists use the term socialization to designate that process by which children are trained to think and act as society demands. A person is said to be well-socialized if he believes in and obeys the moral code of his society and fits in well as a functioning part of that society. It may seem senseless to say that many leftists are over-socialized, since the leftist is perceived as a rebel. Nevertheless, the position can be defended. Many leftists are not such rebels as they seem. Number 25. The moral code of our society is so demanding that no one can think, feel, and act in a completely moral way. For example, we are not supposed to hate anyone, yet almost everyone hates somebody at some time or other, whether he admits it to himself or not. Some people are so highly socialized that the attempt to think, feel, and act morally imposes a severe burden on them. In order to avoid feelings of guilt, they continually have to deceive themselves about their own motives and find moral explanations for feelings and actions that in reality have a non-moral origin. We use the term over-socialized to describe such people. Number 26. Over-socialization can lead to low self-esteem, a sense of powerlessness, defeatism, guilt, etc., one of the most important means by which our society socializes children is by making them feel ashamed of behavior or speech that is contrary to society's expectations. If this is overdone, 
or if a particular child is especially susceptible to such feelings, he ends up by feeling ashamed of himself. Moreover, the thought and the behavior of the over-socialized person are more restricted by society's expectations than are those of the lightly socialized person. The majority of people engage in a significant amount of naughty behavior. They lie, they commit petty thefts, they break traffic laws, they goof off at work, they hate someone, they say spiteful things, or they use some underhanded trick to get ahead of the other guy. The over-socialized person cannot do these things, or if he does do them, he generates in himself a sense of shame and self-hatred. The over-socialized person cannot even experience, without guilt, thoughts or feelings that are contrary to the accepted morality. He cannot think unclean thoughts. And socialization is not just a matter of morality. We are socialized to conform to many norms of behavior that do not fall under the heading of morality. Thus, the over-socialized person is kept on a psychological leash and spends his life running on rails that society has laid down for him. In many over-socialized people, this results in a sense of constraint and powerlessness that can be a severe hardship. We suggest that over-socialization is among the more serious cruelties that human beings inflict on one another. Number 27. We argue that a very important and influential segment of the modern left is over-socialized and that their over-socialization is of great importance in determining the direction of modern leftism. Leftists of the over-socialized type tend to be intellectuals or members of the upper middle class. Notice that university intellectuals constitute the most highly socialized segment of our society and also the most left-wing segment. Number 28. The leftist of the over-socialized type tries to get off his psychological leash and assert his autonomy by rebelling. But usually he is not strong enough to rebel against the most basic values of society. Generally speaking, the goals of today's leftists are not in conflict with the accepted morality. On the contrary, the left takes an accepted moral principle, adopts it as its own, and then accuses mainstream society of violating that principle. Examples, racial equality, equality of the sexes, helping poor people, peace as opposed to war, nonviolence generally, freedom of expression, kindness to animals. More fundamentally, the duty of the individual to serve society and the duty of society to take care of the individual. All these have been deeply rooted values of our society, or at least of its middle and upper classes, for a long time. These values are explicitly or implicitly expressed or presupposed in most of the material presented to us by the mainstream communications media and the educational system. Leftists, especially those of the over-socialized type, usually do not rebel against these principles, but justify their hostility to society by claiming, with some degree of truth, that society is not living up to these principles. Number 29. Here is an illustration of the way in which the over-socialized leftist shows his real attachment to the conventional attitudes of our society, while pretending to be in rebellion against it. Many leftists push for an affirmative action, 
for moving black people into high prestige jobs, for improved education in black schools and more money for such schools. The way of life of the black underclass they regard as a social disgrace. They want to integrate the black man into the system, make him a business executive, a lawyer, a scientist, just like the upper middle class white people. The leftists will reply that the last thing they want is to make the black man into a copy of the white man. Instead, they want to preserve African-American culture. But in what does this preservation of African-American culture consist? It can hardly consist in anything more than eating black-style food, listening to black-style music, wearing black-style clothing, and going to a black-style church or mosque. In other words, it can express itself only in superficial matters. In all essential respects, most leftists of the over-socialized type want to make the black man conform to white, middle-class ideals. They want to make him study technical subjects, become an executive or a scientist, spend his life climbing the status ladder to prove that black people are as good as white. They want to make black fathers responsible. They want black gangs to become nonviolent, etc. But these are exactly the values of the industrial technological system. The system couldn't care less what kind of music a man listens to, what kind of clothes he wears, or what religion he believes in, as long as he studies in school, holds a respectable job, climbs the status ladder, is a responsible parent, is nonviolent, and so forth. In effect, however he may deny it, the over-socialized leftist wants to integrate the black man into the system and make him adopt its values. Number 30. We certainly do not claim that leftists, even the over-socialized type, never rebel against the fundamental values of our society. Clearly they sometimes do. Some over-socialized leftists have gone so far as to rebel against one of modern society's most important principles by engaging in the physical violence. By their own account, violence is for them a form of liberation. In other words, by committing violence, they break through the psychological restraints that have been trained into them. Because they are over-socialized, these restraints have been more confining for them than for others. Hence, their need to break free of them. But they usually justify the rebellion in terms of mainstream values. If they engage in violence, they claim to be fighting against racism or the like. Number 31. We realize that many objections could be raised to the foregoing thumbnail sketch of leftist psychology. The real situation is complex and anything like a complete description of it would take several volumes, even if the necessary data were available. We claim only to have indicated, very roughly, the two most important tendencies in the psychology of modern leftism. Number 32. The problems of the leftists are indicative of the problems of our society as a whole. Low self-esteem Depressive tendencies and defeatism are not restricted to the left. Though they are especially noticeable in the left, they are widespread in our society. And today's society tries to socialize us to a greater extent than any previous society. We are even told by our experts how to eat, how to exercise, how to make love, how to raise our kids, and so forth. The Power Process 
number 33. Human beings have a need, probably based in biology, for something that we will call the power process. This is closely related to the need for power, which is widely recognized, but is not quite the same thing. The power process has four elements. The three most clear-cut of these we call goal, effort, and attainment of goal. Everyone needs to have goals whose attainment requires effort and needs to succeed in attaining at least some of his goals. The fourth element is more difficult to define and may not be necessary for everyone. We call it autonomy, and we'll discuss it later, paragraphs 42 to 44. Number 34. Consider the hypothetical case of a man who can have anything he wants just by wishing for it. Such a man has power, but he will develop serious psychological problems. At first, he will have a lot of fun. But by and by, he will become acutely bored and demoralized. Eventually, he may become clinically depressed. History shows that leisured aristocracies tend to become decadent. This is not true of fighting aristocracies that have to struggle to maintain their power. But leisured, secure aristocracies that have no need to exert themselves usually become bored, hedonistic, and demoralized, even though they have power. This shows that power is not enough. One must have goals toward which to exercise one's power. Number 35. Everyone has goals, if nothing else, to obtain the physical necessities of life. Food, water, and whatever clothing and shelter are made necessary by the climate. But the leisured aristocrat obtains these things without effort, hence his boredom and demoralization. Number 36. Non-attainment of important goals results in death if the goals are physical necessities and in frustration if non-attainment of the goals is compatible with survival. Consistent failure to attain goals throughout life results in defeatism, low self-esteem, or depression. Number 37. Thus, in order to avoid serious psychological problems, a human being needs goals whose attainment requires effort, and he must have a reasonable rate of success in attaining his goals. Surrogate Activities, number 38. But not every leisured aristocrat becomes bored and demoralized. For example, the emperor Hirohito, instead of sinking into decadent hedonism, devoted himself to marine biology, a field in which he became distinguished. When people do not have to exert themselves to satisfy their physical needs, they often set up artificial goals for themselves. In many cases, they then pursue these goals with the same energy and emotional involvement that they otherwise would have put into the search for physical necessities. Thus, the aristocrats of the Roman Empire had their literary pretensions. Many European aristocrats a few centuries ago invested tremendous time and energy in hunting, though they certainly didn't need the meat. Other aristocracies have competed for status through elaborate displays of wealth, and a few aristocrats, like Hirohito, have turned to science. Number 39. We use the term surrogate activity to designate an activity that is directed towards an artificial goal that people set up for themselves, merely in order to have some goal to work toward, or let us say, 
merely for the sake of the fulfillment that they get from pursuing the goal. Here is the rule of thumb for the identification of surrogate activities. Given a person who devotes much time and energy to the pursuit of goal X, ask yourself this. If he had to devote most of his time and energy to satisfying his biological needs, and if that effort required him to use his physical and mental faculties in a varied and interesting way, would he feel seriously deprived because he did not attain goal X? If the answer is no, then the person's pursuit of goal X is a surrogate activity. Hirohito's studies in marine biology clearly constituted a surrogate activity, since it is pretty certain that if Hirohito had had to spend his time working at interesting non-scientific tasks in order to obtain the necessities of life, he would have felt deprived because he didn't know all about the anatomy and life cycles of marine animals. On the other hand, the pursuit of sex and love, for example, is not a surrogate activity, because most people, even if their existence were otherwise satisfactory, would feel deprived if they passed their lives without ever having a relationship with a member of the opposite sex. But pursuit of an excessive amount of sex, more than one really needs, can be a surrogate activity. Number 40. In modern industrial society, only minimal effort is necessary to satisfy one's physical needs. It is enough to go through a training program to acquire some petty technical skill, then come back to work on time and exert the very modest effort needed to hold a job. The only requirements are a moderate amount of intelligence, most of all, simple obedience. If one has those, society takes care of one from cradle to grave. Yes, there is an underclass that cannot take the physical necessities for granted, but we are speaking here of mainstream society. Thus, it is not surprising that modern society is full of surrogate activities. These include scientific work, athletic achievement, humanitarian work, artistic and literary creation, climbing the corporate ladder, acquisition of money and material goods for far beyond the point at which they cease to give any additional physical satisfaction, and social activism when it addresses issues that are not important for the activists personally, as is the case of white activists who work for the rights of non-white minorities. These are not always pure surrogate activities, since for many people they may be motivated in part by needs other than the need to have some goal to pursue. Scientific work may be motivated in part by a drive for prestige, artistic creation by a need to express feelings, militant social activism by hostility. But for most people who pursue them, these activities are in large part surrogate activities. For example, the majority of scientists will probably agree that the fulfillment they get from their work is more important than the money and prestige they earn. Number 41. For many people, if not most people, surrogate activities are less satisfying than the pursuit of real goals. That is, goals that people would want to attain even if their need for the power process were already fulfilled. One indication of this is the fact that in many, or most cases, people who are deeply involved in surrogate activities are never satisfied, never at rest. Thus, the moneymaker constantly strives for more and more wealth. The scientist no sooner solves one problem than he moves on to the next. 
The long-distance runner drives himself to run always further and faster. Many people who pursue surrogate activities will say that they get far more fulfillment from these activities than they do from the mundane business of satisfying their biological needs. But that is because in our society, the effort needed to satisfy the biological needs has been reduced to triviality. More importantly, in our society, people do not satisfy their biological needs autonomously, but by functioning as parts of an immense social machine. In contrast, people generally have a great deal of autonomy in pursuing their surrogate activities. Autonomy. Number 42. Autonomy as a part of the power process may not be necessary for every individual, but most people need a greater or lesser degree of autonomy in working toward their goals. Their efforts must be undertaken on their own initiative and must be under their own direction and control. Yet most people do not have to exert this initiative, direction, and control as single individuals. It is usually enough to act as a member of a small group. Thus, if half a dozen people discuss a goal among themselves and make a successful joint effort to attain that goal, their need for the power process will be served. But if they work under rigid orders handed down from above that leave them no room for autonomous decision and initiative, then their need for the power process will not be served. The same is true when decisions are made on a collective basis if the group making the collective decision is so large that the role of each individual is insignificant. Number 43. It is true that some individuals seem to have little need for autonomy. Either their drive for power is weak, or they satisfy it by identifying themselves with some powerful organization to which they belong. And then their unthinking animal types who seem to be satisfied with a purely physical sense of power the good combat soldier who gets his sense of power by developing fighting skills that he is quite content to use in blind obedience to his superiors. Number 44. But for most people, it is through the power process, having a goal, making an autonomous effort, and attaining the goal that self-esteem, self-confidence, and a sense of power are acquired. When one does not have adequate opportunity to go through the power process, the consequences are, depending on the individual and on the way the power process is disrupted, boredom, demoralization, low self-esteem, inferiority feelings, defeatism, depression, anxiety, guilt, frustration, hostility, spouse or child abuse, insatiable hedonism, abnormal sexual behavior, sleep disorders, eating disorders, etc. Sources of Social Problems Number 45 Any of the foregoing symptoms can occur in any society, but in modern industrial society they are present on a massive scale. We aren't the first to mention that the world today seems to be going crazy. This sort of thing is not normal for human societies. There is good reason to believe that primitive man suffered from less stress and frustration and was better satisfied with his way of life than modern man is. It is true that not all was sweetness and light in primitive societies. Abuse of women was common among the Australian Aborigines. Transsexuality was fairly common among some of the American Indian tribes. 
but it does appear that generally speaking, the kinds of problems that we have listed in the preceding paragraph were far less common among primitive peoples than they are in modern society. Number 46. We attribute the social and psychological problems of modern society to the fact that society requires people to live under conditions radically different from those under which the human race evolved and to behave in ways that conflict with the patterns of behavior that the human race developed while living under the earlier conditions. It is clear from what we have already written, what we consider lack of opportunity to properly experience the power process as the most important of the abnormal conditions to which modern society subjects people. But it is not the only one. Before dealing with disruption of the power process as a source of social problems, we will discuss some of the other sources. Number 47. Among the abnormal conditions present in modern industrial society are excessive density of population, isolation of man from nature, excessive rapidity of social change, and the breakdown of natural small-scale communities such as the extended family, the village, or the tribe. Number 48. It is well known that crowding increases stress and aggression. The degree of crowding that exists today and the isolation of man from nature are consequences of technological progress. All pre-industrial societies were predominantly rural. The Industrial Revolution vastly increased the size of cities and the proportion of the population that lives in them, and modern agricultural technology has made it possible for the earth to support a far denser population than it ever did before. Also, technology exacerbates the effects of crowding because it puts increased disruptive powers in people's hands. For example, a variety of noise-making devices, power mowers, radios, motorcycles, etc. If the use of these devices is unrestricted, people who want peace and quiet are frustrated by the noise. If their use is restricted, people who use the devices are frustrated by the regulations. But if these machines had never been invented, there would have been no conflict or no frustration generated by them. Number 49. For primitive societies, the natural world, which usually changes only slowly, provided a stable framework and therefore a sense of security. In the modern world, it is human society that dominates nature rather than the other way around. And modern society changes very rapidly owing to technological change. Thus, there is no stable framework. Number 50. The conservatives are fools. They whine about the decay of traditional values, yet they enthusiastically support technological progress and economic growth. Apparently, it never occurs to them that you can't make rapid, drastic changes in the technology and the economy of a society without causing rapid changes in all other aspects of the society as well, and that such rapid changes inevitably break down traditional values. Number 51. The breakdown of traditional values to some extent implies the breakdown of the bonds that hold together traditional small-scale social groups. The disintegration of small-scale social groups is also promoted by the fact that modern conditions often require or tempt individuals to move to new locations, separating themselves from their communities. Beyond that, 
A technological society has to weaken family ties and local communities if it is to function efficiently. In modern society, an individual's loyalty must be first to the system and only secondarily to the small-scale community. Because if the internal loyalties of small-scale communities were stronger than loyalty to the system, such communities would pursue their own advantage at the expense of the system. Number 52. Suppose that a public official or a corporation executive appoints his cousin, his friend, or his co-religionist to a position rather than appointing the person best qualified for the job. He has permitted personal loyalty to supersede his loyalty to the system, and that is nepotism or discrimination, both of which are terrible sins in modern society. Would-be industrial societies that have done a poor job of subordinating personal or local loyalties to loyalty to the system are usually very inefficient. Look at Latin America. Thus, an advanced industrial society can tolerate only those small-scale communities that are emasculated, tamed, and made into tools of the system. Number 53. Crowding. Rapid change and the breakdown of communities have been widely recognized as sources of social problems. But we do not believe that they are enough to account for the extent of the problems that are seen today. Number 54. A few pre-industrial cities were very large and crowded, yet their inhabitants do not seem to have suffered from psychological problems to the same extent as modern man. In America today, there are still are uncrowded rural areas, and we find there are the same problems as in urban areas, though the problems tend to be less acute in the rural areas. Thus, crowding does not seem to be the decisive factor. Number 55. On the growing edge of the American frontier during the 19th century, the mobility of the population probably broke down extended families and small-scale social groups to at least the same extent as these are broken down today. In fact, many nuclear families lived by choice in such isolation, having no neighbors within several miles. That they belong to no community at all, yet they do not seem to have developed problems as a result. Number 56. Furthermore, a change in American frontier society was very rapid and deep. A man might be born and raised in a log cabin outside the reach of law and order and fed largely on wild meat. And by the time he arrived at old age, he might be working at a regular job and living in an ordered community with effective law enforcement. This was a deeper change than that which typically occurs in the life of a modern individual. Yet it does not seem to have led to psychological problems. In fact, 19th century American society had an optimistic and self-confident tone, quite unlike that of today's society. Number 57. The difference, we argue, is that modern man has the sense, largely justified, that change is imposed on him, whereas the 19th century frontiersman had the sense, also largely justified, that he created change himself by his own choice. Thus, a pioneer settled on a piece of land of his own choosing and made it into a farm through his own effort. In those days, an entire county might have only a couple hundred inhabitants and was a far more isolated and autonomous entity than a modern county is. 
Hence, the pioneer farmer participated as a member of a relatively small group in the creation of a new, ordered community. One may well question whether the creation of this community was an improvement, but at any rate, it satisfied the pioneer's need for the power process. Number 58. It would be possible to give other examples of societies in which there has been a rapid change and or lack of close community ties without the kind of massive behavioral aberration that is seen in today's industrial society. We contend that the most important cause of social and psychological problems in modern society is the fact that people have insufficient opportunity to go through the power process in a normal way. We don't mean to say that modern society is the only one in which the power process has been disrupted. Probably most of, if not all, civilized societies have interfered with the power process to a greater or lesser extent. But in modern industrial society, the problem has become particularly acute. Leftism, at least in its recent, mid to late 20th century form, is in part a symptom of deprivation with respect to the power process. Disruption of the power process in modern society. Number 59. We divide human drives into three groups. Number one, those drives that can be satisfied with minimal effort. Number two, those that can be satisfied but only at the cost of serious effort. And number three, those that cannot be adequately satisfied no matter how much effort one makes. The power process is the process of the satisfying the drives of the second group. The more drives there are in the third group, the more there is frustration, anger, eventually defeatism, depression, etc. Number 60. In modern industrial society, natural human drives tend to be pushed into the first and third groups. And the second group tends to consist increasingly of artificially created drives. Number 61. In primitive societies, physical necessities generally fall into group two. They can be obtained, but only at the cost of serious effort. But modern society tends to quarantine the physical necessities to everyone in exchange for only minimal effort. Hence, physical needs are pushed into group one. There may be a disagreement about whether the effort needed to hold a job is minimal, but usually in lower to middle level jobs, Whatever effort is required is merely that of obedience. You sit or stand where you are told to sit or stand and do what you are told to do in the way you are told to do it. Seldom do you have to exert yourself seriously, and in any case you have hardly any autonomy in work, so that the need for the power process is not well served. Number 62. Social needs, such as sex, love, and status, often remain in group two in modern society, depending on the situation of the individual. But except for the people who have particularly strong drive for status, the effort required to fulfill the social drives is insufficient to satisfy adequately the need for the power process. Number 63. So certain artificial needs have been created that fall into group two, hence serve the need for the power process. Advertising and marketing techniques have been developed that make people feel they need things that their grandparents never desired or even dreamed of. It requires serious effort to earn enough money to satisfy these artificial needs. Hence, they fall into group two. 
but see paragraphs 80 to 82. Modern man must satisfy his need for the power process, largely through pursuit of the artificial needs created by the advertising and marketing industry, and through surrogate activities. Number 64. It seems that for many people, maybe the majority, these artificial forms of the power process are insufficient. A theme that appears repeatedly in the writings of the social critics of the second half of the 20th century is the sense of purposelessness that afflicts many people in modern society. This purposelessness is often called by other names such as anomic or middle-class vacuity. We suggest that the so-called identity crisis is actually a search for a sense of purpose, often for commitment to a suitable surrogate activity. It may be that existentialism is in large part a response to the purposelessness of modern life. Very widespread in modern society is the search for fulfillment. But we think that for the majority of people, an activity whose main goal is fulfillment, that is a surrogate activity, does not bring completely satisfactory fulfillment. In other words, it does not fully satisfy the need for the power process. See paragraph 41. That need can be fully satisfied only through activities that have some external goal, such as physical necessities, sex, love, status, revenge, etc. Number 65. Moreover, where goals are pursued through earning money, climbing the status ladder, or functioning as a part of the system in some other way, most people are not in a position to pursue their goals autonomously. Most workers are someone else's employee and, as we pointed out in paragraph 61, must spend their days doing what they are told to do in the way they are told to do it. Even people who are in business for themselves have only limited autonomy. It is a chronic complaint of small business persons and entrepreneurs that their hands are tied by excessive government regulation. Some of these regulations are doubtless unnecessary, but for the most part, government regulations are essential and inevitable parts of our extremely complex society. A large portion of small business today operates on the franchise system. It was reported in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago that many of the franchise-granting companies require applicants for franchisees to take a personality test that is designed to exclude those who have creativity and initiative, because such persons are not sufficiently docile enough to go immediately along with the franchise system. This excludes from small business many of the people who most need autonomy. Number 66. Today people live more by virtue of what the system does for them or to them than by virtue of what they do for themselves. And what they do for themselves is done more and more along channels laid down by the system. Opportunities tend to be those that the system provides. The opportunities must be exploited in accordance with the rules and regulations. And techniques prescribed by experts must be followed if there is to be a chance of success. Number 67. Thus the power process is disrupted in our society through a deficiency of real goals and a deficiency of autonomy in the pursuit of goals but it is also disrupted because of those human drives that fall into group three, the drives that one cannot adequately satisfy no matter how much effort one makes. 
One of these drives is the need for security. Our lives depend on decisions made by other people. We have no control over these decisions, and usually we do not even know the people who make them. We live in a world in which relatively few people, maybe 500 or 1,000, make the important decisions. Philip B. Hyman of Harvard Law School, quoted by Anthony Lewis, New York Times, April 21, 1995. Our lives depend on whether safety standards at a nuclear power plant are properly maintained, on how much pesticide is allowed to get into our food or how much pollution into our air, or how skillful or incompetent our doctor is. Whether we lose or get a job may depend on decisions made by government economists or corporate executives, and so forth. Most individuals are not in a position to secure themselves against these threats to more than a very limited extent. The individual's search for security is therefore frustrated, which leads to a sense of powerlessness. Number 68. It may be objected that primitive man is physically less secure than modern man, as is shown by his shorter life expectancy. Hence, modern man suffers from less, not more, than the amount of insecurity that is normal for human beings. But psychological security does not closely correspond with physical security. What makes us feel secure is not so much objective security as a sense of confidence in our ability to take care of ourselves. Primitive man, threatened by a fierce animal or by hunger, can fight in self-defense or travel in search of food. He has no certainty of success in these efforts, but he is by no means helpless against the things that threaten him. The modern individual, on the other hand, is threatened by many things against which he is helpless. Nuclear accidents, carcinogens in food, environmental pollution, war, increasing taxes, invasion of his privacy by large organizations, nationwide social or economic phenomena that may disrupt his way of life. Number 69. It is true that primitive man is powerless against some of the things that threaten him, disease, for example, but he can accept the risk of disease stoically. It is part of the nature of things. It is no one's fault unless it is the fault of some imaginary, impersonal demon. But threats to the modern individual tend to be man-made. They are not the results of chance, but are imposed on him by other persons whose decisions he, as an individual, is unable to influence. Consequently, he feels frustrated, humiliated, and angry. Number 70. Thus, primitive man, for the most part, has his security in his own hands, either as an individual or as a member of a small group. Whereas the security of modern man is in the hands of persons or organizations that are too remote or too large for him to be able to personally influence. So modern man's drive for security tends to fall into groups 1 and 3. In some areas, food, shelter, etc., his security is assured at the cost of only trivial effort, whereas in other areas he cannot attain security. The foregoing greatly simplifies the real situation, but it does indicate in a rough, general way how the condition of modern man differs from that of primitive man. Number 71. People have many transitory drives or impulses that are necessarily frustrated in modern life, hence fall into group three. One may become angry, but modern society cannot permit fighting. 
In many situations, it does not even permit verbal aggression. When going somewhere, one may be in a hurry, or one may be in a mood to travel slowly, but one generally has no choice but to move with the flow of traffic and obey the traffic signals. One may want to do one's work in a different way, but usually one can work only according to the rules laid down by one's employer. In many other ways as well, modern man is strapped down by a network of rules and regulations, explicit or implicit, that frustrate many of his impulses and thus interfere with the power process. Most of these regulations cannot be dispensed with because they are necessary for the functioning of industrial society. Number 72. Modern society is in certain respects extremely permissive. In matters that are irrelevant to the functioning of the system, we can generally do what we please. We can believe in any religion we like, as long as it does not encourage behavior that is dangerous to the system. We can go to bed with anyone we like, as long as we practice safe sex. We can do anything we like, as long as it is unimportant. But in all important matters, the system tends increasingly to regulate our behavior. Number 73. Behavior is regulated not only through explicit rules and not only by the government. Control is often exercised through indirect coercion or through psychological pressure or manipulation and by organizations other than the government or by the system as a whole. Most large organizations use some form of propaganda to manipulate public attitudes or behavior. And propaganda is not limited to commercials and advertisements, and sometimes it is not even consciously intended as propaganda by the people who make it. For instance, the content of entertainment programming is a powerful form of propaganda. An example of indirect coercion. There is no law that says we have to go to work every day and follow our employer's orders. Legally, there is nothing to prevent us from going to live in the wild like primitive people or from going into business for ourselves. But in practice, there is only very little wild country left. And there is room in the economy for only a limited number of small business owners. Hence, most of us can survive only as someone else's employee. Number 74. We suggest that modern man's obsession with longevity and with maintaining physical vigor and sexual attractiveness to an advanced age, is a symptom of unfulfillment resulting from deprivation with respect to the power process. The midlife crisis also is such a symptom. So is the lack of interest in having children that is fairly common in modern society, but almost unheard of in primitive societies. Number 75. In primitive societies, life is a succession of stages. The needs and purpose of one stage having been fulfilled, there is no particular reluctance about passing on to the next stage. A young man goes through the power process by becoming a hunter, hunting not for sport or for fulfillment, but to get meat that is necessary for food. In young women, the process is more complex, with greater emphasis on social power. We won't discuss that here. This phase having been successfully passed through, the young man has no reluctance about settling down to the responsibilities of raising a family. In contrast, some modern people indefinitely postpone having children because they are too busy seeking some kind of fulfillment. Number 
We suggest that the fulfillment they need is adequate experience of the power process with real goals instead of the artificial goals of surrogate activities. Again, having successfully raised his children, going through the power process by providing them with the physical necessities, the primitive man feels that his work is done and he is prepared to accept old age, if he survives that long, and death. Many modern people, on the other hand, are disturbed by the prospect of physical deterioration and death, as is shown by the amount of effort they expend trying to maintain their physical condition, appearance, and health. We argue that this is due to unfulfillment resulting from the fact that they have never put their physical powers to any practical use, have never gone through the power process using their bodies in a serious way. It is not the primitive man who has used his body daily for practical purposes, who fears the deterioration of age, but the modern man, who has never had a practical use for his body beyond walking from his car to his house. It is the man whose need for the power process has been satisfied during his life who is best prepared to accept the end of that life. Number 76. In response to the arguments of this section, someone will say, society must find a way to give people the opportunity to go through the power process. For such people, the value of the opportunity is destroyed by the very fact that society gives it to them. What they need is to find or make their own opportunities. As long as the system gives them their opportunities, it still has them on a leash. To attain autonomy, they must get off that leash. How Some People Adjust Number 77 Not everyone in industrial technological society suffers from psychological problems. Some people even profess to be quite satisfied with society as it is. We now discuss some of the reasons why people differ so greatly in their response to modern society. Number 78. First, there doubtless are differences in the strength of the drive for power. Individuals with a weak drive for power have relatively little need to go through the power process, or at least relatively little need for autonomy in the power process. These are docile types who would have been happy as a plantation darkies in the Old South. We don't mean to sneer at the plantation darkies of the Old South. To their credit, most of the slaves were not content with their servitude. We do sneer at people who are content with servitude. Number 79. Some people may have some exceptional drive in pursuing which they satisfy their need for the power process. For example, those who have an unusually strong drive for social status may spend their whole lives climbing the status ladder without even getting bored with that game. Number 80. People vary in their susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques. Some are so susceptible that even if they make a great deal of money, they cannot satisfy their constant craving for the shiny new toys that the marketing industry dangles before their eyes so they always feel hard-pressed financially, even if their income is large and their cravings are frustrated. Number 81. Some people have low susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques. These are the people who aren't interested in money. 
material acquisition does not serve their need for the power process. Number 82. People who have medium susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques are able to earn enough money to satisfy their craving for goods and services, but only at the cost of serious effort, putting in overtime, taking a second job, earning promotions, etc. Thus, material acquisition serves their need for the power process, but it does not necessarily follow that their need is fully satisfied. They may have insufficient autonomy in the power process. Their work may consist of following orders, and some of their drives may be frustrated. Example, security and aggression. We are guilty of oversimplification in paragraphs 80 to 82 because we have assumed that the desire for material acquisition is entirely a creation of the advertising and marketing industry. Of course, it's not that simple. Number 83. Some people partly satisfy their need for power by identifying themselves with a powerful organization or mass movement. An individual lacking goals or power joins a movement or an organization, adopts its goals as his own, then works towards those goals. When some of the goals are attained, the individual, even though his personal efforts have played only an insignificant part in the attainment of the goals, feels through his identification with the movement organization, as if he had gone through the power process. This phenomenon was exploited by the fascists, Nazis, and communists. Our society uses it too, though less crudely. Example, Manuel Noriega was an irritant to the U.S. Goal, punish Noriega. The U.S. invaded Panama, effort, and punished Noriega, attainment of goal. Thus, the U.S. went through the power process and many Americans, because of their identification with the U.S., experienced the power process vicariously. Hence, the widespread public approval of the Panama invasion. It gave people a sense of power. We see the same phenomena in armies, corporations, political parties, humanitarian organizations, religious or ideological movements. In particular, Leftist movements tend to attract people who are seeking to satisfy their need for power. But for most people, identification with a large organization or a mass movement does not fully satisfy the need for power. Number 84. Another way in which people satisfy their need for the power process is through surrogate activities. As we explained in paragraphs 38 to 40, A surrogate activity is an activity that is directed toward an artificial goal that the individual pursues for the sake of the fulfillment that he gets from pursuing the goal, not because he needs to attain the goal itself. For instance, there's no practical motive for building enormous muscles, hitting a little ball into a hole, or acquiring a complete series of postage stamps. Yet many people in our society devote themselves with a passion to bodybuilding golf, or stamp collecting. Some people are more other-directed than others, and therefore will more readily attach importance to a surrogate activity simply because the people around them treat it as important or because society tells them that it is important. That is why some people get very serious about essentially trivial activities such as sports or bridge or chess or arcane scholarly pursuits, whereas others 
who are more clear-sighted never see these things as anything but the surrogate activities that they are, and consequently never attach enough importance to them to satisfy their need for the power process in that way. It only remains to point out that in many cases, a person's way of earning a living is also a surrogate activity, not a pure surrogate activity, since part of the motive for the activity is to gain the physical necessities and, for some people, social status and the luxuries that advertising makes them want. But many people put into their work far more effort than is necessary to earn whatever money and status they require. And this extra effort constitutes a surrogate activity. This extra effort, together with the emotional investment that accompanies it, is one of the most potent forces acting toward the continual development and perfecting of the system, with negative consequences for individual freedom. See paragraph 131. Especially for the most creative scientists and engineers, work tends to be largely a surrogate activity. This point is so important that it deserves a separate discussion, which we shall give it in a moment, paragraphs 87 to 92. Number 85. In this section, we've explained how many people in modern society do satisfy their need for the power process, to a greater or lesser extent. But we think that, for the majority of people, the need for the power process is not fully satisfied. In the first place those who have an insatiable drive for status, or who get firmly hooked on a surrogate activity, or who identify strongly enough with a movement or organization to satisfy their need for power in that way, are exceptional personalities. Others are not fully satisfied with surrogate activities or by identification with an organization. See paragraphs 41 and 64. In the second place, too much control is imposed by the system through explicit regulation or through socialization, which results in a deficiency of autonomy and in frustration due to the impossibility of attaining certain goals and the necessity of restraining too many impulses. Number 86. But even if most people in industrial technological society were well satisfied, we, FC, would still be opposed to that form of society because, among other reasons, we consider it demeaning to fulfill one's need for the power process through surrogate activities or through identification with an organization, rather than through pursuit of real goals. The Motives of Scientists Number 87 Science and technology provide the most important examples of surrogate activities. Some scientists claim that they are motivated by curiosity or by a desire to benefit humanity. But it is easy to see that neither of these can be the principal motive of most scientists. As for curiosity, that notion is simply absurd. Most scientists work on highly specialized problems that are not the object of any normal curiosity. For example, is an astronomer, a mathematician, or an entomologist curious about the properties of isopropyl trimethylene? Of course not. Only a chemist is curious about such a thing, and he is curious about it only because chemistry is his surrogate activity. Is the chemist curious about the appropriate classification of a new species of beetle? No. 
That question is of interest only to the entomologist, and he is interested in it only because entomology is his surrogate activity. If the chemist and the entomologist had to exert themselves seriously to obtain the physical necessities, and if that effort exercised their abilities in an interesting way but in some non-scientific pursuit, then they wouldn't give a damn about the isopropyl trimethylene or the classification of beetles. Suppose that lack of funds for postgraduate education had led the chemist to become an insurance broker instead of a chemist. In that case, he would have been very interested in insurance matters, but would have cared nothing about the isopropyl trimethylene. In any case, it is not normal to put into satisfaction of mere curiosity the amount of time and effort that scientists put into their work. The curiosity explanation for the scientist's motive just doesn't stand up. Number 88. The benefit of humanity explanation doesn't work any better. Some scientific work has no conceivable relation to the welfare of the human race. Most of archaeology or comparative linguistics, for example, some other area of science present obviously dangerous possibilities. Yet scientists in these areas are just as enthusiastic about their work as those who develop vaccines or study air pollution. Consider the case of Dr. Edward Teller, who had an obvious emotional involvement in promoting nuclear power plants. Did this involvement stem from a desire to benefit humanity? If so, then why didn't Dr. Teller get emotional about other humanitarian causes? If he was such a humanitarian, then why did he help develop the H-bomb? As with many other scientific achievements, it is very much open to question whether nuclear power plants actually do benefit humanity. Does the cheap electricity outweigh the accumulating waste and the risk of accidents? Dr. Teller saw only one side of the question. Clearly, his emotional involvement with nuclear power arose not from a desire to benefit humanity, but from a personal fulfillment he got from his work and from seeing it put to practical use. Number 89. The same is true of scientists generally. With possible rare exceptions, their motive is neither curiosity nor desire to benefit humanity, but the need to go through the power process, to have a goal, a scientific problem to solve, to make an effort, research, and to attain a goal, solution of the problem. Science is a surrogate activity because scientists work mainly for the fulfillment they get out of the work itself. Number 90. Of course, it's not that simple. Other motives do play a role for many scientists. Money and status, for example. Some scientists may be persons of the type who have an insatiable drive for status, see paragraph 79, and this may provide much of the motivation for their work. No doubt the majority of scientists, like the majority of the general population, are more or less susceptible to the advertising and marketing techniques and need money to satisfy their craving for goods and services. Thus, science is not a pure surrogate activity, but it is a large part of the surrogate activity. Number 91. Also, science and technology constitute a power mass movement and many scientists gratify their need for power through identification with this mass movement. See paragraph 83. Number 92. Thus, science marches on blindly, 
without regard to the real welfare of the human race or to any other standard, obedient only to the psychological needs of the scientists and of the government officials and corporation executives who provide the funds for research. The Nature of Freedom Number 93 We are going to argue that industrial, technological society cannot be reformed in such a way as to prevent it from progressively narrowing the sphere of human freedom. But because freedom is a word that can be interpreted in many ways, we must first make clear what kind of freedom we are concerned with. Number 94 By freedom, we mean the opportunity to go through the power process with real goals, not the artificial goals of surrogate activities, and without interference, manipulation, or supervision from anyone, especially from any large organization. Freedom means being in control, either as an individual or as a member of a small group. Of the life and death issues of one's existence, food, clothing, shelter, and defense against whatever threats there may be in one's own environment. Freedom means having power, not the power to control other people, but the power to control the circumstances of one's own life. One does not have the freedom if anyone else, especially a large organization, has power over one, no matter how benevolently, tolerantly, and permissively that power may be exercised. It is important not to confuse freedom with mere permissiveness. See paragraph 72. Number 95. It is said that we live in a free society because we have a certain number of constitutionally guaranteed rights. But these are not as important as they seem. The degree of personal freedom that exists in a society is determined more by the economic and technological structure of the society than by its laws or its form of government. Most of the Indian nations of New England were monarchies, and many of the cities of the Italian Renaissance were controlled by dictators. But in reading about these societies, one gets the impression that they allowed far more personal freedom than our society does. In part, this was because they lacked efficient mechanisms for enforcing the ruler's will. There were no modern, well-organized police forces, no rapid, long-distance communications, no surveillance cameras, no dossiers of information about the lives of average citizens. Hence, it was relatively easy to evade control. Number 96. As for our constitutional rights, consider, for example, that a freedom of the press. We certainly don't mean to knock that right. It is a very important tool for limiting concentration of political power and for keeping those who do have political power in line by publicly exposing any misbehavior on their part. But freedom of the press is of very little use to the average citizen as an individual. The mass media are mostly under the control of large organizations that are integrated into the system. Anyone who has a little money can have something printed or can distribute it on the internet or in some such way but what he has to say will be swamped by the vast volume of material put out by the media. Hence, it will have no practical effect. To make an impression on society with words is therefore almost impossible for most individuals and small groups. Take us, FC, for example. If we had never done 
anything violent and had submitted the present writings to a publisher, they probably would not have been accepted. If they had been accepted and published, they probably would not have attracted many readers because it's more fun to watch the entertainment put out by the media than to read a sober essay. Even if these writings had had many readers, most of these readers would soon have forgotten what they had read as their minds were flooded by the massive material to which the media exposed them. In order to get our message before the public, with some chance of making a lasting impression, we've had to kill people. Number 97. Constitutional rights are useful up to a point, but they do not serve to guarantee much more than what might be called the bourgeois conception of freedom. According to the bourgeois conception, a free man is essentially an element of a social machine and has only a certain set of prescribed and delimited freedoms. Freedoms that are designed to serve the needs of the social machine more than those of the individual. Thus, the bourgeois free man has an economic freedom because that promotes growth and progress. He has freedom of the press because public criticism restrains misbehavior by political leaders. He has a right to a fair trial because imprisonment at the whim of a powerful would be bad for the system. This was clearly the attitude of Simon Bolivar. To him, people deserved liberty only if they used it to promote progress. Progress as conceived by the bourgeois. Other bourgeois thinkers have taken a similar view of freedom as a mere means to collective ends. Chester C. Tan, Chinese Political Thought in the 20th Century, page 202, explains the philosophy of the Kuomintang leader Hu Hanmin, an individual is granted rights because he is a member of society and his community life requires such rights. By community, who meant the whole society of the nation. And on page 259, Tan states that according to Carson Chang, Chang Chan Mai, head of the state socialist party in China, freedom had to be used in the interest of the state and of many people as a whole. But what kind of freedom does one have if one can use it only as someone else prescribes? FC's conception of freedom is not that of Bolivar, Hu, Chang, or other bourgeois theorists. The trouble with such theorists is that they have made the development and application of social theories their surrogate activity. Consequently, the theories are designed to serve the needs of the theorists more than the needs of any people who may be unlucky enough to live in a society on which the theories are imposed. Number 98. One more point to be made in this section. It should not be assumed that a person has enough freedom just because he says he has enough. Freedom is restricted in part by psychological controls of which people are unconscious. And moreover, many people's ideas of what constitutes freedom are governed by social convention than their real needs. For example, it is likely that many leftists of the over-socialized type would say that most people, including themselves, are socialized too little rather than too much. Yet the over-socialized leftist pays a heavy psychological price for his high level of socialization. Some Principles of History Number 99 
Think of history as being the sum of two components, an erratic component that consists of unpredictable events that follow no discernible pattern, and a regular component that consists of long-term historical trends. Here, we are concerned with the long-term trends. Number 100. First Principle If a small change is made that affects a long-term historical trend, then the effect of that change will almost always be transitory. The trend will soon revert to its original state. Example. A reform movement designed to clean up political corruption in a society rarely has more than a short-term effect. Sooner or later, the reformers relax and corruption creeps back in. The level of political corruption in a given society tends to remain constant, or to change only slowly with the evolution of the society. Normally, a political cleanup will be permanent only if accompanied by widespread social changes. A small change in the society won't be enough. If a small change in a long-term historical trend appears to be permanent, it is only because the change acts in the direction in which the trend is already moving, so that the trend is not altered by only pushed a step ahead. If a trend were not stable with respect to small changes, it would wander at random rather than following a definite direction. In other words, it would not be a long-term trend at all. Number 102. Second Principle. If a change is made that is sufficiently large to alter permanently a long-term historical trend, then it will alter the society as a whole. In other words, a society is a system in which all parts are interrelated, and you can't permanently change any important part without changing all the other parts as well. Number 103. Third Principle. If a change is made that is large enough to alter permanently a long-term trend, then the consequences for the society as a whole cannot be predicted in advance. Unless various other societies have passed through the same change and have all experienced the same consequences, in which case one can predict on empirical grounds that another society that passes through the same change will be likely to experience similar consequences. Number 104. Fourth Principle. A new kind of society cannot be designed on paper. That is, you cannot plan out a new form of society in advance, then set it up and expect it to function as it was designed to do. Number 105. The third and fourth principles result from the complexity of human societies. A change in human behavior will affect the economy of a society and its physical environment. The economy will affect the environment and vice versa, and the changes in the economy and the environment will affect the human behavior in complex, unpredictable ways, and so forth. The network of causes and effects is far too complex and to be untangled and understood. Number 106. Fifth Principle. People do not consciously and rationally choose the form of their society. Societies develop through processes of social evolution that are not under rational human control. Number 107. The fifth principle is a consequence of the other four. Number 108. To illustrate, 
By the first principle, generally speaking, an attempt at social reform either acts in the direction in which the society is developing anyway, so that it merely accelerates a change that would have occurred in any case, or else it has only a transitory effect, so that the society soon slips back into its old groove. To make a lasting change in the direction of development of any important aspect of society, reform is insufficient and revolution is required. A revolution does not necessarily involve an armed uprising or the overthrow of a government. By the second principle, a revolution never changes only one aspect of a society. It changes the whole society. And by the third principle, changes occur that were never expected or desired by the revolutionaries. By the fourth principle, when revolutionaries or utopians set up a new kind of society, it never works out as planned. Number 109. The American Revolution does not provide a counterexample. The American Revolution was not a revolution in our sense of the word, but a war of independence followed by a rather far-reaching political reform. The Founding Fathers did not change the direction of development of American society, nor did they aspire to do so. They only freed the development of the American society from the retarding effect of British rule. Their political reform did not change any basic trend, but only pushed American political culture along its natural direction of development. British society, of which American society was an offshoot, had been moving for a long time in the direction of representative democracy. And prior to the War of Independence, the Americans were already practicing a significant degree of representative democracy in the colonial assemblies. The political system established by the Constitution was modeled on the British system and on the colonial assemblies. With major alteration, to be sure, there is no doubt that the Founding Fathers took a very important step. But it was a step along the road that English-speaking world was already traveling. The proof is that Britain and all of its colonies that were populated predominantly by people of British descent ended up with systems of representative democracy essentially similar to that of the United States. If the Founding Fathers had lost their nerve and declined to sign the Declaration of Independence, our way of life today would not have been significantly different. Maybe we would have somewhat closer ties to Britain and would have had a parliament and a prime minister instead of a congress and president. No big deal. Thus, the American Revolution provides not a counterexample to our principles, but a good illustration of them.